Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 8, Genesis chapters 8 and 9. Alright, um, we're going to start today on Genesis 8. Genesis 8. So, open your Bibles to Genesis 8, and I'm going to go ahead and read it from start to finish. Genesis 8. God remembered Noah, every living thing, and all the livestock with him in the ark. So God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to go down. Also, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the sky were stopped. The rain from the sky was restrained, and the water came back from completely covering the earth. It was after 150 days that the water went down. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The water kept going down until the 10th month, and then on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains were seen. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark which he had built, and he sent out a raven which flew back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had gone from the surface of the ground. But the dove found no place for her feet to rest, so she returned to him in the ark because the water still covered the whole earth. He put out his hand, he took her and brought her in to him in the ark. He waited another seven days and again sent the dove out from the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening, and there in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water had uh, cleared from the earth. He waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove. And she didn't return to him anymore. By the first day of the first month of the 601st year, the water had dried up from the surface of the earth. So Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and yes, the surface of the ground was dry. It was on the 27th day of the second month that the earth was dry. God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing you have with you, birds, livestock, and every animal that creeps on the earth so that they can swarm on the earth, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird, whatever moves on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Noah built an altar to Adonai. Then he took from every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Adonai smelled the sweet aroma, and Adonai said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, since the imaginings of a person's heart are evil from his youth. Nor will I ever again destroy all living things as I have done, so long as the earth exists, sowing time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. Well, just as chapter 7 began with 
the comforting words that God had invited the righteous family of Noah into the safety of the ark, chapter 8 tells us that God remembered Noah. But the verse doesn't stop there. It says he also remembered all the living things that came into the ark with Noah. And I can't stress enough how important God's living creatures, what we typically call animals, are to God. I mean, man is certainly a bit above the animals, placed into dominion over the animals. Yet, you know what? We're made of the same stuff as the animals, the dust of the ground. And we've already learned that God put his neshama, all right, spirit of life, into both animals and mankind. Now, I'm not trying to be an advertisement for PETA. All right? I'm saying that we lose sight of the fact that animals were not made by God to be throwaways. Okay? No doubt, early in Genesis, when God paraded those animals by Adam as he named them, we must not forget that Adam was also given the opportunity to select one of them as a companion. Okay? Not in the sense of a wife, all right, but as a friend. All right? And no doubt, this was to show us the place man has, slightly above the animals, but also this loving importance that God places on all of his living creatures. Now, I'll only point this out because if, if I can be permitted to attach a human emotion to God, it was a terrible thing the day that God had to kill an animal or two to make animal skin clothing to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. It would have grieved him greatly to do this. And it grieved him when for his own good reasons it became necessary for animals to be slain on a regular basis for blood sacrifice in order to atone for men's sins. And it must have grieved him yet again when for reasons I really can't fathom the father of all things instructed Noah and his descendants that they could now kill countless thousands and then millions of his living creatures for food. I mean, this was a huge matter. Okay. When we're told that God knows when a sparrow falls from the sky, it's because that sparrow is one of his living creatures who now no longer lives. Okay. Not knowing the sparrow in, in, in the sense that a single dollar is important to an accountant reconciling his books, rather because God put his life spirit into that creature. And now it's extinguished. That sparrow is important to him. Now we, we too often look at that verse only from the viewpoint of how important man is. Because it also says he numbers the hair on our heads. More for some, less for others. Right? But that's not the entire point. It's that the bird is important to him too. So, way before Jesus came to the world, God was watching his living creatures die on account of mankind's sin. Now, the second half of verse 1 uses a word that's familiar to us. It says that God brought a rushing wind across the earth to push back the waters 
The Hebrew word used here is ruach, R-U-A-C-H. In Hebrew, Holy Spirit is ruach hakodesh. Okay, ruach is commonly used in the Old Testament as a word to describe God's spirit. Sometimes just used for spirit in general. So this rushing wind that was sent was far more than just a weather event. Okay? This wind, of course, was real and literal, but it also involves the idea that this wind had a spiritual component as it was of God. Okay? Uh, another one of our examples of the reality of duality. All right, well, after 150 days of the water rising, the water receded for the next 150 days. And the, the wooden ark bobbed around in the flood waters till it came to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. Not Mount Ararat, a specific peak. Rather, somewhere on top of one of the mountains of the extensive Ararat range um, that is in modern-day Turkey. I've got it on the map up here for you, and you can see where that is. And we're told the precise day, the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, but it would be a while now before they would disembark. Okay, Forty more days passed, and Noah sent out a raven, a scavenger bird, an unclean bird. Okay, It, it didn't come back, all right, which indicated it probably had found food, likely dead things. Right. Um, next, a dove, a clean animal, was sent out, but it returned, which indicated that it had no food source yet. Well, a week later, Noah sent out another dove, and this time it returned with a green olive leaf in its in its beak. Now, you know, quite remarkably, it is well known by olive growers that they're, they never have to fear flooding because an olive branch will actually bear leaves underwater. Okay? It's also interesting to note that for some reason, God wants us to know the exact month to the day that certain stages of the flooding and its receding occurred. For instance, we see that on the first day, uh, first month, the first day, that is the first day of a new year, it was safe to remove the covering over the ark, and all that then remained was for the ground to dry up enough for the ark's inhabitants to set foot on the earth again. It was on the second month, the 27th day, that God instructed Noah that he could now resume life on the soil of the earth. Now, how interesting it is that the self-same flood that destroyed the old also purified and made way for the new. Death of that which was corrupted was needed in order to prepare for new life. And again, we have a type and shadow of what was to come. For, for Christ, called living water in the New Testament, is what this all pointed to. Our old natures die and we're purified through his living water. 
And it sets up all the symbolic meaning even of water baptism. All right? Through death, we're brought to new life. Well, Noah well understood by now the impact of what had just, just transpired. Right? And in verse 20, in an absolutely appropriate response, says he built an altar and he sacrificed of every kind of clean animal to the Lord. The first act of the new order of mankind was to honor God. Yet, as we're soon going to see, this newly purified world, beginning in righteousness, thoroughly understanding sin in its awful and destructive consequences, perhaps like, perhaps like no other generation ever, all right, was not going to stay clean for long. All right? but, but this sacrifice of Noah also shows us at least one rather important reason that God ordered 14, that is seven pairs of clean animals to be brought on board the ark. If Noah was going to sacrifice from every single species of clean animal, which he did, had there been only a single pair of clean species brought on board, this sacrifice would have signaled the extinct, extinction of all those species, right? Okay. Further, by performing this series of sacrifices, Noah affirmed that he would take up the mantle of the line of Seth, the godly line of people. By the way, what were the uh, unclean animals used for? I mean, why were they even retained? All right, in, instead of just being allowed to die out in the flood. Okay, well, without getting too graphic, later on we're going to find that several of the unclean variety of animals live on a scavenger diet. The corpses of dead people and animals must have been strewn everywhere as the water receded. All right. These animals would have thrived on this rather enormous food supply. All right. And they certainly served a useful purpose cleaning up the landscape, just as vultures and other scavengers do today. And we should not forget the principle of our universe that everything has an opposite. Okay. If there was clean... There had to be unclean. But I also want to make something quite clear about that which God ordains as unclean. By no means are all unclean animals scavengers. That's not the definition of an unclean animal. In fact, there appears to be no behavioral pattern nor physical characteristic no particular kind of food that those animals eat or any other thing that we can put our fingers on to understand why God designated certain animals to be unclean. Okay. There have been a lot of theories put forth, but absolutely none of them hold water. Okay. We simply need to grasp that God is sovereign, that he makes decisions and choices that he usually doesn't reveal the reasoning behind it. Okay? So, so if you leave here tonight with one understanding about clean 
and unclean, let it be this. Unclean animals are not some broad category of bad animals. Clean animals are not inherently better than unclean animals. Unclean animals are not defective animals, nor are they animals of less importance to God. They are nothing more nor less than a choice made by the Creator for His own good reason. And He's never decided to share that reasoning behind that choice with mankind. It is simply not in the Scriptures. Now, the last two verses of chapter 8 reveal a couple of important pieces of information. One, that God accepted Noah's sacrifices. He found them pleasing, we're told. Second, that God was never again going to, dis going to destroy all land-inhabiting creatures the way he had just finished doing with a deluge of water. And three, please notice the phrase in verse 21 that says, since what the human heart forms is evil from its youth. Now, I want you to think back a couple of weeks to our lesson on Genesis 6. Okay, those of you that weren't here for that, I don't know if we have any CDs left of it or not, but, but I would, it, it might help you a little bit to get that since we talked a lot about evil in that. It says, the human heart forms evil from its youth. Now, what could be a more direct admission by the Almighty than this? Man has a problem. He has evil in him. Okay? And, and as we discussed last week, where's the reference to Satan? Right? I mean, where does God pin the problem of evil in mankind on the devil? Okay? He doesn't. Now, don't get me wrong. Satan is real and he entices men to do evil. But Satan did not create evil. Satan himself was a created being just like anything else. And he made a moral choice. And he became evil embodied to its fullest. Okay. Satan simply takes advantage of the evil inclination that is in us all, all right, by means of deception. Okay. Where it says the heart forms evil from its youth. From its youth is written mene ara. Right, M-I-N-E-A-R-A-W in Hebrew. This literally means from his awakening. From his awakening. So perhaps a better rendering of that phrase would be since what the human heart forms is evil from his awakening. Now, Rabbi Judin, all right, one of the great ancient Hebrew sages, explains that this means from the time a human has awareness. Okay. The sages argued whether awareness took place in the womb or immediately upon birth or very shortly thereafter. But, but either way, 
The point is that all persons are born with hearts that form evil. That is what is being said here in verse 21. And it is not saying that the human heart is only evil. Not at all. It is not saying that babies are automatically born with a 100% evil inclination. Okay? We're not born 100% evil. Now, if you don't know God from a peanut, all right, you're not 100% evil. Okay? No. This important statement by God that we just read here, verse 21, is simply acknowledging that everyone is born with an evil inclination. And due to the principles of opposites, everyone is also born with a good inclination as well. But you have Satan always, of course, appealing to your evil inclination, trying to pull you that direction. Now, a question was asked of me last week. When did God abandon the Garden of Eden? Well, up to the flood, apparently man looked towards the Garden Okay. when communicating with God. But from here on now, in the Bible, post-flood, we're going to see that God looks downward to man and man now looks upward to God. Okay. So, so we know that just as whatever remained of the garden was destroyed in the flood, God now communicated with man from his heavenly realm. And it was going to be a long time before he would reestablish a place, something like the garden, where he would dwell with mankind and communicate with mankind. And it happened in Moses' day with the building of the wilderness tabernacle. Okay, now, immediately following the flood, the earth was a vastly different place from what it had been just a few short months earlier. The oceans were now more extensive than they were before. The land was, at first, nearly barren of vegetation and, of course, devoid of animal life. The mist that enveloped the air and watered the vegetation was gone. Okay. The, the, the formerly even and temperate world climate now had more radical swings to it. Seasons became more pronounced. And as a result, more important seasons were, de were what determined the growth of plants because plants need temperatures for a certain amount of time and things like that. All right? Certain amounts of sunlight had to be available. And, and most dramatically, only eight people and a handful of animals were left to inhabit and then repopulate the entire surface of the earth. But more than that, we see this. Noah was the new Adam. From him would all mankind spring. You and I are all related to Noah, much more closely than we are to Adam. Okay. But Noah and Adam operated from very different paradigms. 
Okay. Their situations were quite at opposite poles. Adam was created as perfection. And he was created into a world of perfection. He was created in the image of God. Noah, though, was born into a world of imperfection. It had been purified, all right, but it was not perfect. All right. Because although Noah was declared righteous in God's eyes, Noah, just like all of us, was born with a fallen nature and carried with him right on into the new world. Because Noah trusted and obeyed God, God simply declared Noah righteous. This most fundamental principle of salvation for a Christian, trusting God and being credited as opposed to earning righteousness is the exact same principle we all count on today. And it's present right here in the Old Testament in Genesis. As Adam was created in the image of God, so Noah was created, so to speak, in the image of Adam. Okay. And an era ended and a new one began. Okay. This, this universally sinful state of the world of which Noah was the patriarch represented the new basis on how God was going to deal with the post-flood world and all of its aspects, quite apart from how it was for Adam, quite apart of how it was going to be with the eventual advent of Christ, and still quite apart from how it's going to someday be in the not-too-distant future. We're going to see the tremendous differences between the old world before the flood and the new post-flood world almost immediately as we start now to read Genesis 9. So open your Bibles again. Let's take a look at Genesis 9. We'll get started a little bit in that tonight. Genesis 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will be upon every wild animal, every bird in the air, every creature populating the ground, and all the fish in the sea. They have been handed over to you. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants before, now I give you everything. Only flesh with its life, which is its blood, you're not to eat. I will certainly demand an account for the blood of your lives. I will demand it from every animal and from every human being. I will demand from every human being an accounting for the life of his fellow human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by a human being will his own blood be shed. For God made human beings in his image. And you people, be fruitful, multiply, swarm on the earth, and multiply on it. God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, and he said, As for me, I am hereby establishing my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every wild animal with you, all going out of the ark, every animal on earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again 
will all living beings be destroyed by the waters of a flood and there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God added, here is the sign of the covenant I am making between myself and you and every living creature with you for all generations to come. I'm putting my rainbow in the cloud. It will be there as a sign of the covenant between myself and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow is seen in the cloud, I will remember my covenant which is between myself and you and every living uh, creature of any kind. And the water will never again become a flood to destroy all living beings. The rainbow will be in the cloud so that when I look at it, I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of any kind on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between myself and every living creature on the earth. The sons of Noah who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Ham is the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and the whole earth was populated by them. Noah, a farmer, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank so much of the wine that he got drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father shamefully exposed and he went out and told his two brothers. Shem and Yafet took a cloak put it over their shoulders and walking backward went in and covered their naked father. Their faces were turned away so they did not see their father lying there shamefully exposed. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. He will be a servant of servants to his brothers. Then he said, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Shem. Canaan will be their servant. May God enlarge Yafet. He will live in the tents of Shem, but Canaan will be their servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. In all, Noah lived 950 years. Then he died. Well, the great changes in the governing dynamics of man's ex existence in his relationship to his environment and his responsibilities before God are all evident right away in verse 2. Whereas animals were once fearless and trusting and in willing subjugation to man, now they are afraid. Before the flood, they were almost like companions to man, now God ordains that man's dominion over the animals will be by force. Okay. The very same animals that so docilely appeared before Adam in order to be named are now going to be terrified of man. And verse 3 tells us that meat is no longer a pro prohibited food source for man. Animal flesh is now approved. Okay. Now, I, I've heard people ask how it was that Noah got all those animals to enter the ark. Simple. Before the flood, man had an entirely different relationship with the animals than after. Now, verse 2 also gives, gives us an opportunity to put a little common sense back into reading the Bible. Okay, now, don't ever think that the words written do not mean what they say. Yet, 
They mean what they mean in the common sense of the Hebrew culture of that day when it was written. Okay. It says here that all animals will fear and dread man. Now the fact is we know full well that not 100% of all animals fear man. Never have. Okay. Many animals are quite comfortable with men because they've been domesticated and raised for that purpose. Sheep learned their shepherd's own voice. Okay. Now without getting into too much detail, j j just for instance think of common pets like cats and dogs who certainly don't fear men. The point is this. When the Bible says the words everything or every or all, it means it in a general sense. Okay. All or everything does not mean 100.00%. Okay. Rather it means it's the general rule but there's likely a handful of exceptions. Um, we, we might say in our modern vocabulary the vast majority. Okay. Think of how we commonly talk. I mean, we say things like "everybody's against me," okay, or "everything I do turns out bad," or "I always take the same route home." Now, none of these things are true 100% of the time. It's a figure of speech, so we have to be very careful not to read in some theological absolute into these sorts of statements when none was ever intended. Now, though every living creature was okay for food, there was a very strict prohibition. And this was placed on the eating of meat and it was that man could not eat the blood from an animal. And the reason we're told is that the blood is where the life is. Okay. Blood was only to be used for sacrifice, never for human consumption. For blood, the seed of life was simply too holy for man to be allowed to partake of it as food. Okay. And we see the importance of blood is carried over from animals to humans. For murder, the taking of human blood is specifically prohibited. Notice it in verse 5. That God hands the duty of meeting out justice for the murder of a human over to other men. Okay. Up to now, God d dealt with it himself. Okay. And he dealt with it very differently, apparently. Because now we see that a man who kills another man is to himself be killed. Okay? Remember, the penalty for murder when it was Cain, Cain, all right? Remember when he killed his brother Abel? Remember that punishment was? It was banishment from the presence of God. God even went so far as to place a sign on Cain or over Cain or made him a sign not quite sure, quite sure which of that, uh, those three it was, so that others would not be tempted to take matters into their own hands and harm Cain. Okay? Mere separation from God was the punishment. But what the ancient rabbis so brilliantly point out concerning these passages is that it is here 
that we find God establishing the principle of earthly government. Civil law was created in these verses. Right? With God delegating some of his authority to man. Now later in Leviticus, God would go to great lengths to define something that we constantly try to rewrite and with little success. What justice is. Okay? We tend to call God's definition of justice the law. Now these same rabbis and scribes also came to the conclusion that if God turned over to man the terrible matter of determining capital punishment, the right to take a human life, then certainly lesser matters of life, such as authority over wives and children and servants and property and land and so on, was also now in man's hand. As a matter of fact, from this is what came, what, is, what was eventually called the seven Noahide laws. Now, the Noahide laws were essentially the most fundamental principles of civil justice as told by God to Noah, from which all other civil laws were going to be based. Now, we don't actually see these seven laws specifically enumerated at this point in the, scripture, in, in the scriptures. Yet, interestingly, thousands of years later, after Christ had come and gone, these Noahide laws will play a role in the determination of the Jerusalem Council of 49 AD as to the minimum behavioral requirements for Gentiles who want to fellowship with and worship alongside of Jews who have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. Now these Noahide laws are, are the following. One, Men were prohibited from idol worship. Two, man was not to commit blasphemy, taking God's name in vain, or making an oath by God's name and violating it. Man was not to murder. Four, there was not to be any incest. Five, there was to be no robbing and stealing. Six, man was not to eat blood, nor was he to eat the meat of animals that had been strangled because therefore they had not been properly bled. Okay. Seven, man was to submit to the authority of civil government. Well, next, in verse 8, God makes a covenant. Now, as we meet Abraham in just a few more weeks, we'll talk a little more about the important nature of covenants. But for now, just recognize that this covenant is a contract. It's a promise. In this case, it's between God and Noah. But it is also a promise from God to all living flesh. This particular covenant with Noah, or this, this contract, is unilateral. The contract does not depend on man's response or man's behavior. It's all on God. Other covenants we will eventually encounter will have a mutual requirement. That is, God and man will have roles to play in order for it to remain in effect. Okay? And this is the first covenant between God and man mentioned in the Torah. Now, there is a 
theological belief that this covenant with Noah is actually the second covenant with mankind. Okay, That the first was between God and Adam. And it was that if Adam hadn't eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, man could have stayed in the garden, garden with God. Well, personally, I think that waters down the impact of the concept of covenant. The Bible doesn't call, call out any covenant all right, in that, in, uh, with Adam. Certainly God gave Adam an instruction not to eat of that tree. But just because the idea was that if he disobeyed, there would be a penalty, does not make that single instruction to attain the level of a covenant. Okay. And the covenant is this. God will never again destroy the world and everything in it by flood. Of course, God did leave the door open just a tad to destroy the world by about any other means. All right, but that's another story. Anyway, the sign of this covenant is the rainbow. Now, while I don't want to spend much time with this, the question always comes, was that the first rainbow? And my unequivocal answer to this is maybe. Okay. Here's the thing. God set many physical things in the heavens to be used as signs. We're told that right up front in Genesis 1. Okay. He didn't necessarily come up with a new one each time he felt a sign was necessary. I mean, the physics of light and refraction as it passes through moisture is well understood. And we know it's not necessary for actual rain to occur in order to have a rainbow. We just need a sufficient amount of water content in the atmosphere. It, however, almost universally among the ancient and modern biblical scholars, the conclusion that this was the first rainbow stands. So I really don't see any reason to belabor the point nor to dispute it. But I would like to point out this matter of God saying when he looked upon the rainbow that he would remember his covenant with all living things to not bring an end to things again with a flood. Now, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, statements of this sort are figurative. God is not a man. He does not have human attributes. God is not some kind of superhuman either. He is a wholly separate and different being than a man. Nor, by the way, we some kind of lesser gods. Okay. God doesn't need to have his memory jogged. Okay. He doesn't need an enormous notepad and all kinds of signs all right, to remember what he promised. But you know, I also imagine that for many generations from Noah, as the flood was still relatively fresh in people's mind, that every time it rained, there was a little bit of anxiousness while they waited for the rain to stop. Wouldn't you imagine? All right, and how reassuring it must have been to look up and see that rainbow in the sky and remind them of the promise that God made. Right. You know, that hasn't changed just because a few thousand years have passed from Noah to our day. So maybe the next time we walk outside and see a beautiful rainbow, 
let's remember that in fact, that is a sign from God. It's a gift to us. I think this is a good place to stop for tonight.